Okay. We are now ready for the fourth. <laughs> we are now ready for the fourth vision. And so I'll read three verses out of Zechariah chapter four. And the angel who talked with me again came and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep, and said unto me, What seest thou? You notice how the angels here are just chartering and taking this right, right to Zechariah. They are the facilitators, if you will. If we could only see behind the scenes the angelic work going on to bring about events, um, it would be mind-boggling. We would see angels on the mountaintops as well, doing the will of God. And so this vision, and this is meant to tell us that the bringing about of these prophetic events will require a collage of angelic um, activity to bring this to fruition. Imagine what's going on in the world today. Imagine the shaping of our present administration's uh, uh, destructive government. Imagine what's going on in the halls of the EU. Imagine what's going on in Iran and in Israel. The angelic activity to bring about God's will, drawing us all down into that valley of Jehoshaphat, if you will. So this is not any different. <clears throat> a man that is wakened out of his sleep, and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and its seven lamps on it, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top of it. Seven. We just considered seven eyes, didn't we, upon a headstone? <laughs> Has anything really changed other than just a little different prophetic picture or activity that needs to be accomplished. And two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left side of it. This, this particular overhead was drawn for me by Brother Todd Treadway, who is a very skilled artist and uh, who put this together. So you'll see this starting to pop up in Christadelphia as it gets out there more and more. Now, this chapter is the pinnacle of the visions, you might say. It's the watershed of Zechariah's seven visions <clears throat> because it is now showing us the process by which things will be brought about to happen and the reclamation, if you will, the urban renewal of the kingdom age is in and through the fulfillment of this vision. Um, in verse 7, firstly, there is reference to a great mountain looming before Zerubbabel. And there is also reference to, he shall bring forth the headstone of it. And in verse 10, you'll notice there is also reference to, with these seven, they are the eyes of the Lord, which turn run to and fro through the earth. So we have the seven eyes in reference to the headstone, which we've just considered 
Christ the headstone with the multitude of saints doing his will is tied into this vision of the lampstand which will require the workings of the seven eyes the saintly host which will bring about the fulfillment and the light generated by this vision of the lamp and the two olive trees now you know that in terms of kingdom age work the work of the angels will now become secondary to our understanding of that reference in Hebrews and the saints will step into the role of the angels in the kingdom age so Michael who now stands before Yahweh and is regarded as Yahweh's angel will give way to the great prince referenced in Daniel 12 1 which we understand is to be Christ now who steps into the role of Michael who stands before the figurative throne of Yahweh and who now will disseminate Yahweh's will through the seven eyes or the multitudinous saintly host that now steps into the role of the angels today there is reference to firstly this great mountain so let me skip ahead to that for just a minute the great mountain that loomed before Zerubbabel was a little bit different in his day than what looms before Israel today because there were three more beastly kingdoms that had to be fulfilled in terms of that particular time frame. The Persian Empire hadn't run its course yet, neither had the Grecian, neither had the Roman. And today, we look at all of those collectively, and we especially are trying to get our minds and teeth around the great fourth beast, which was unique and diverse from all the others. Correct? So what do we have in this great mountain? These are some of the contents I would suggest for your consideration. I'll just read them into the record. We have Babylon. We have Egypt. These still have an influence on us today, do they not? We have Medo-Persia. We have Greeks, Roman. We have all of their collective philosophy, which now has permeated uh, our literature and our government historically. We have all pagan religions now, which are knockoffs from these. We have Catholicism, of course, the great apostasy. We have the Christian harlot daughters religions, which represents all of the street, uh, the churches on every street corner that we have. We have the frog-like spirits, spirits of humanism, democracy, all of these are offshoots of socialism and they have all come out of the French Revolution now, have they not? Um, we have the European common market, we have communism, we have intense nationalism and pride, we have the United Nations, we have the Gargian Confederacy, which will be solidified very soon, as we understand in Ezekiel 38. We have now radical Muslims, which has been brought to the forefront front and crystallized by 9-11. And we have 
all anti-Zionism collectively. Um, we have all the Agagites, who are all the Jew haters of every stripe in the world, all factored into this great mountain, this great looming mountain, and aggregates of this, as if mixed into a mixer, for example, will become the kings of the earth who have traded with the glue that binds the system at the end time, which will be the apostasy, which will be the apostate religion, which will scream antichrist, and which will oppose the work of God. This then, I think, helps us to get a picture of the looming great mountain, which was to be destroyed by the eyes on the headstone before Zerubbabel, or in his presence, which means he will be resurrected to see the end of all this. <clears throat> and what are we told in Second Thessalonians 2? This system will be destroyed by the brightness of Christ's coming. Right? So it was to be in existence and is in existence and will be destroyed after it's identified by Christ and his antitypical eyes. Now, I'm ahead of myself. So, this then is out there now, is it not? This is out there predominantly found north in the north country of Jerusalem, which is our point of reference, is it not? And this then is what needs to be dealt with in the very near future, and this will be leveled. Now, what do we understand about the leveling of this? Let's go to Revelation 16 for just a minute. and lightnings and there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth so mighty an earthquake and so great and the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath and every island fled away and the mountains were not found <clears throat> Does this mean, as some would say, that the earth will be flattened? I don't think so. This great earthquake represents, in the apocalypse, the third great earthquake. The first great earthquake was the time of Constantine. Was it not? Revelation chapter 6, where the, the populace was told to crawl into caves and let the rocks fall on us. It was a great geopolitical earthquake, the time of Constantine. Tremendous upheaval. The birth of the man-child in Revelation 12. <clears throat> the second great earthquake was the French Revolution, where the tenth part of the great city Babylon fell, i.e. Paris and France, 
referenced in Revelation 11. The great earthquake there was which brought forth liberty, equality, fraternity, right? It brought forth all of these ingredients that permeate society now. The third great earthquake is referenced here in Revelation 16. And this will be an earthquake like no one has seen before. This will be the return of Christ and or Armageddon. What's this going to do? It'll have a similar work. It'll have a similar leveling of the great mountain or Daniel's fourth beast. Um, it is. It will be a geopolitical upheaval such as men has never experienced before. And every island and mountain will melt away or be, be leveled. All pockets or bastions of opposition will be destroyed. There will be no mountains of opposition left, no place to hide for the antagonist. This then is what's referenced there. So this then represents the final demise of Daniel's fourth beast, as it's described there in Daniel chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. Reading from that, I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spoke, I beheld even till the beast was slain, its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest, as for the rest of the beasts, or read the rest of the nations that are left after the great conflict, the residue of the lesser nations, as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time, or we could say into the millennium they were allowed to have a presence where their existence, we might say, is going to be determined by their obedience and compliance. For those who are resistant they will re and don't go up to worship the Feast of Tabernacles, which implies they are not Zionward in their thinking and deportment, they will receive no rain. They will, in essence, be starved, and they will wither, and they will disappear. Now we're back to the vision of the lampstand. What we have here, we have... We have a kingdom age apparatus for administration. And it's a marvelous one, and it's one that once you, once you get into it, you can draw upon it, and you never really exhaust the teaching here. Let's start out with Jew and Gentile trees, drawing upon what we understand from Romans 11. We're told in Romans 11 that some of the branches were broken off of, um, implying the holy roots. The holy roots are the Jerusalem tree, the Hebrew tree. The fatness thereof has to be the promises made to Abraham and the patriarchs, right? God's plan is Hebrew or Jewish. We now have a Gentile tree, the opportunity that emerged with the apostolic movement, of course. 
what makes up spiritual Israel? Jew and Gentile, does it not? Anybody else out there? Jew and Gentile. So out of the Jewish contingency, out of the Gentile contingency, will be saints who have bought into the plan of God, who have come into covenant through the Christ lamp stem, and who will be immortalized in the kingdom age. They are they are in verse 14 of Zechariah 4 these are the two anointed ones that stand before the Lord of the whole earth. These are the two interpreted sons of oil is how you would render anointed ones who stand before the Adon or the ruler of the whole earth who stand before Christ so just because one's Jewish and just because one's a Gentile doesn't mean that he has a rap on eternal life or the kingdom age does he they in turn are represented by these two golden pipes which means they have come through the process of Yahweh's calling by his word. You recall that sequence in Romans. Those who he predestinated beforehand or whom he knew would respond to the word of God, he called or <clears throat> kaleo by the power of his word. Those then went into the justified pool and we are a justified pool of brethren, aspiring saints, and those whom he have, has justified from them, we might say, will he glorify. So we are in the justified pool of saints in covenant, and our next step found worthy is to be glorified. So this then is a bit of a tracing is out of Jew and Gentile will be the immortalized remnant representing each. What are we told in Galatians 3? We become one in Christ Jesus, do we not? Seven burners representing the antitypical seven lampstand ecclesias in Revelation. Seven, the number of divine completion in and through the covenant corresponding to the seven stones on the headstone. Burning the word of God in our lives now and certainly in the kingdom age. Receiving the produce from the now mortal nations in the kingdom age, Jew and Gentile. And this all feeds into glorifying and serving Christ, our headstone, or in this place, called our lampstand stem and base, all to the glory of Yahweh. Therefore, we become a new product, right? Galatians 6, neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, 
all one in Christ Jesus. So that's how this apparatus works. The the um, uh, marvelous uh, phenomena of photosynthesis factors in. Those of you who are into uh, horticulture, the sun shines on a plant, a tree. Each leaf is a miniature factory. The stomata on the leaves allows the sunlight to enter. The leaf is a miniature factory. It photosynthesizes from the sunlight, read S-U-N and S-O-N, and it produces a, a new material, i.e. the rarefied, burned word of God, which feeds and sustains the plant. In the kingdom age, this apparatus, and we call it an apparatus, will draw from the product and the Zion word um, trades, the Zion word compliance, the Zion word alms of the nations that are left and they will all journey to Zion to worship at the great Ezekiel's temple. They will go up to the house of the Lord because they want to catch a glimpse of this divine hierarchy. And this will continue to grow and to grow and to grow in light until, we're told, the kingdom will start as a mustard seed and darkness will be totally crowded out of every corner and crevice of the earth. So therein lies the uh, thumbnail sketch of what this apparatus is all about. Now one little sidebar that we want to inject is that this is about light and it's about a lamp stand. The word lamps is rendered gleaming lamps and it's used figuratively of progeny. Now that's important. Yes, we're interested in lights and lamps, but the fact that progeny become a light source is what we're interested in. This is a neat concept progeny represents or equates to lights. So anytime you see the word lamps in scripture, especially the Old Testament, check the context and see if you inserted progeny, would you change the meaning or would you enrich the meaning? So um, to summarize this, this graphic is what I call the progression of light scripturally. Um, in Matthew 5.14, you recall, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. So, this picture represents a lot of little lights. This is you and me, hopefully. We are called out into Yahweh's presence 
And as we burn the word of God, figurative of the oil in the lampstand, the oil represented burning the spirit word of God within our minds and hearts. So as we burn the word of God in our daily lives, and there's a phrase coming up here in the next chapter, behold the day of small things. We all live in the day of small things. Our lives might be mundane. We have our little jobs. We have our little chores. We're, we're insignificant. We're raising our godly seed. But we are little lights. And Yahweh recognizes that. This is the Gentile tree, let's say. This represents the Jewish tree on the other side of the equation. It's the single dimensional menorah. It was used under the law of Moses. The law of Moses was a parenthesis in God's plan, was it not? It was a unique little time frame. It was punctuated by very stringent um, sacrificial requirements. It was hard to keep. It was a schoolmaster. It was to be done away and fulfilled totally in Christ. Think not that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill it. Therefore, this is the Jewish contingency of the two trees. Here they are in the kingdom age, Jew and Greek, all one in Christ Jesus, participating in a light-giving apparatus. Now you must turn to Revelation 21 and see where this whole thing is concluded. Now reading from verse 25, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did light it. And I would suggest you read, you think, i.e., the eighth day. There is no more death. There's no more sorrow. There's no more weeping. The eighth day now represents the total glorification of those that are left. We know one of the qualities of angels is a shining countenance when it's not hidden or put under wraps. And there's reference to that in Zechariah 14. So the saints and Christ in the eighth day will all represent a shining host. 24. And the nations of them who are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings, and read immortalized kings now, of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. So this then factors into our understanding of the vision of the lampstand. From individuals, Jew and Gentile, come the glorified sons of Zadok now, represented by the two golden pipes, who now, through their burning of the word of God, are one in Christ Jesus, seven becoming one to the glorification of Christ 
their lampstand, and ultimately the glory of Yahweh. So that's how I'd summarize that up. You recall in Exodus 27 that the olive oil had to be prepared very precisely to burn in the menorah in the little wilderness uh, tabernacle. They were to bring olive oil beaten for the light to cause the lamp to burn always. And this then represented oil out of olives beaten or more precisely to get the very fine oil squeezed rather than beaten which could generate too much pulp. It is through much tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God, is it not? Read tribulation as pressure. We are like then sons of oil and it is our desire to enter into the kingdom and it will be because we are squeezed and shaped and molded in the time of our filthy rags or mortality. The wilderness lamp was one-dimensional. Thus, it represents the limitation of the law of Moses. The antitypical lampstand in the kingdom age is three-dimensional. It has much depth to it. Immortality trumps mortality. Now, another lovely picture I want to inject in this, because these, let's turn up, let's go back to Kings here for just a minute, and uh, we'll go back to 1 Kings chapter 6. Because... These are olive trees. Olive trees, of course, grow olive oil. Now, 1 Kings 6 tells us how Solomon is building and going about building the great cherubim that went into his majestic temple, which also was destroyed and which also had to look into the future for a final restoration and conclusion. Now note the size of these cherubim in 1 Kings 6, um, verse 20. And the inner sanctuary in the forepart was 20 cubits in length and 20 cubits in breadth and 20 cubits in the height of it, and it was overlaid with pure gold and so covered the altar. Now, go over to verse 27. And he set the cherubim within the inner house, and they stretched forth the wings of the cherubim, so that the wing of the one touched the one wall, the wing of the other touched the other wall, and their wings touched one another in the middle. And he overlaid the cherubim with gold. 
and he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of cherubim and palm trees again, I feel, the tree of life, and open flowers representing the resurrection has come within and without. And you go on down, verse 32, the two doors also were of olive tree. He carved upon them cherubim, palm trees, open flowers, and gold. We've talked about all these ingredients so far, haven't we? Palm trees, open flowers, Aaron's rod that budded, and now the resurrection has come about. The palm tree, which would be Christ, when it was said, Hosanna, blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord, they didn't know what they were really saying, did they? And at that time it wasn't appropriate, but it was highly figurative, and it pointed toward a future time. This 20 by 20 cubits is the size of the most holy place. Now you have two big cherubim who are overlaid with gold, and what is their inner core? Go back to 23. And within the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive trees. Okay? So, look at the progression and what's going on here. We have these two giant cherubim. It would have, with their 10-foot wingspans, so together, and allowing for their body, their wingtips touch each side of the most holy place, made out of olive wood. You think your chances are going to be very good at finding trees? That would be one piece that you could use. No, I submit they would have been spliced, or in the woodworker's vernacular, laminated which is even more appropriate because now you have all of the little sons of oil figuratively represented in these two giant cherubim who are covered with gold, which is what we all aspire to do, correct? We all want to be um, mortals overlaid with gold at a point in time. Now you go over to 1 Kings 8 and you'll see what happens. 1 Kings 8, verse 6 and 7. And the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto its place into the inner sanctuary of the house of the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubim. So this little ark that they carried around in the wilderness on staves was now slid under the wings of these ten feet, these tall cherubim whose wings literally filled, their presence filled the confines of the most holy place. They were really bursting the boundaries of the most holy place, were they not? The message of the whole scene was, here's this little Christ ark, which with its mercy seat for sacrifice, the lesser cherubim, or the aspiring saints, we might say, who now, at a point in time, will graduate to the stage of the giant cherubim. And what happens? Verse 9. There was nothing in the ark except the two tables of stone, which Moses put there in horror. 
So, the resurrection takes, has taken place. Aaron's rod has budded. And now the lovely open flowers are found around in gold in the most holy place. The golden pot of manna has been eaten. Right? And now you have only the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. They will form the bedrock of law and order into the kingdom age. So they go along in this image. They are still part of it. The giant cherubim overlaid with gold represents in essence the now immortalized saints the sons of oil the giant sons of oil in the kingdom age who go forth to administer and to do the will of God so here we have them represented in this overhead And this is what we all aspire to be. The sons of oil burning the word of God. So to summarize this, immortalized spiritual Israel is represented by the two golden pipes or we may say it's the order of Melchizedek in Ezekiel chapter 44, the sons of Zadok that are blessed to come near to Christ in sacrifice as opposed to the Levitical order which contaminated themselves through their apostate worship. They will be relegated to offering sacrifice to the Gentile nations that come up to the great holy oblation to worship. So the two golden pipes, they will be crowned with immortality. Out of their mortal sojourn as either a natural Jew or a Gentile, they now qualify to become the facilitators and administrators of the kingdom age, managing the produce from the mortal subjects of the millennium represented by both trees, both classes of humanity. Where does the golden oil go? It goes into the one receptacle supported by the one stem or the one in Christ Jesus' body administered by the saints. This all factors into the one man that Daniel saw in chapter 10, verse 5 to 6, which had a voice of a multitude, you recall. Anytime you hear that phrase, as if the voice of a multitude, you want to think, many saints together, an aggregate. Or, as Dr. Thomas would describe, he is the symbol of the multitudinous Yahweh whose name is one, representing the great multitude of the redeemed in the symbolic appearance of one man. So, this all comes together for us in the visionary here. Now, Jesus, the last thought here is, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. But he also said, I am the light of the world. Did he not? So Jesus is the light of the world, and we are to be the little lamps or lights that will join with him in this kingdom age 
example of administrative order and we will complement his light only because we are immortalized and judged worthy. And shining or gleaming is an attribute of the angels now. And it is our hope to become one of the lights in the kingdom age. This represents the grafting process that I alluded to earlier. The need to graft or laminate the core of the giant cherubim and the opportunity in Romans 11 to be grafted into the holy roots. And collectively then, we are to become the sons of oil. So now, we're coming down to our last uh, or our next vision, and let's break that out and get started with it in the time that remains. We are in the flying scroll, which is dovetailed into the woman in the ephah. It's not two visions here, they are collectively one. Now this is a most interesting vision to understand because it allows us to understand and appreciate the dilemma of the nation of Israel today and it also, I think, gives us a clue as to what's happening in our ecclesias today. The concept is the same as this plays out. Verse 5. Then I turned and lifted up mine eyes. So Zechariah is directed to turn and look in a different direction. Erase what we talked about before. New vision. New concept. Look, I looked and I behold. What seest thou? I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its breadth 10 cubits. These were the dimensions of the holy place. This is a clue that this scroll had permeated the holy place or the religious system of Israel as it was them. We're looking at a scroll that goes flying forth and we're told in 5, this is the curse that goeth forth over the face of the whole earth for every one that stealeth shall be cut off on this side and written on the other side and every one that sweareth shall be cut off as on that side. So we have a scroll which is represented as a curse because it was. Think of a flying carpet that goes forth at first through the history of Israel permeating its system of worship and everything that it attempted to do and it's a curse collectively but on one side is referenced those who stealeth and on the other side those who sweareth these are the stealers of the word of God anybody who brings in an apostate religious or twist on scripture is a thief, are they not? 
because they snatch salvation away from the innocent. Those who are hanging in there, who are doing their best, who may not be able to rightly uh, see an issue and all of its sides, but a different twist on scripture can serve as to steal the truth from people who are desperately searching for and who want the truth. The false swearers are those who take the name of Yahweh in vain. This isn't just the cursing person out on the street. This is a person who claims to be a Jew, but is not one inwardly. This is a person who claims to be a righteous heads-up person, a person who you would have perhaps confidence in, but their lifestyle betrays them. They give you mixed messages. Together, this curse is what had permeated Israel to the extent that it had to sustain the first deportation by the Assyrians, did it not? And this will factor into the second part of this vision. The woman, the Babylonish influence that came back from the two captivities. And it resulted in the necessity of the second captivity in Babylon for 70 years. The curse of the flying scroll had done its job so thoroughly that it necessitated this kind of harsh harsh judgment that God brought down on the nation of Israel. For I will bring it forth, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief and into the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name, and it shall remain in the midst of his house and shall consume it with the timber and its stones. So we'll stop with this verse and we'll pick this thought up next time. This is most interesting.